So tonight, we're talking about dating and relationships and this idea that there is the one. And when you're looking in scripture for passages about dating, you're pretty limited. So I'm just going to, this will be story time with Pastor Mary. I just want to read you one that I think um, all of us think is going to happen to us. So Abraham realizes that his son Isaac needs to get married. And he doesn't want Isaac to marry anybody who's right around there. He wants, he wants Isaac to marry somebody from, from back home, from his own people. And so he says to his servant, servant, servant is never named, servant, I want you to go back and I want you to find somebody from my own people for Isaac. Don't settle for any of these people around here. Like, we want to we wanna go back to my own people for this. And so this is where we pick up the story. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels, remember that, and departed, taking all kinds of choice gifts from his master. And he set out and went to Aram Naharaim, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water. It was the evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I'm standing here by the spring of water, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please offer your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one that you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you've shown steadfast love to your master. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, son of Michael, and the nice of Abraham's brother, coming out with her water jar on her shoulder. The girl was very fair to look upon. Of course she was. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me sip a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and lowered her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will water your camels for you also until they have finished drinking. How many camels were there? Some of you have gone to countries where people have had to schlep water, and you know how buff you have to be to schlep water. Ten camels worth of water. All right? She's not only fair to look up on, she is buff. <laughs> so she quickly entered her jar into the trough, ran to the well to draw. She drew water for all his camels. The man gazed in her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold nose ring, because, you know, why not? Weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arm, weighing ten gold shekels, and he tells Tuma, whose daughter you are? Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, son of Melchi, whom bore to Nahor. We have plenty of straw and fodder and place to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the way to the house of my master's kin. And then it goes on, and they meet the family, and the family's like, wow, this is something. Look at that gold. That's impressive. What's happening right now? <laughs> and then they say to her, are you interested in this? Do you actually want to do it? And she says, okay. <laughs> and somehow we think, back now in the 21st century, we think, I need to find me a servant. <laughs> and maybe it would well be like the Starbucks. Would that be like, go to the... 
If the woman offers me the sugar from the, then she is one. Like we think that that's exactly how it's supposed to happen. If she offers me a sip of par caramel latte, then I will know. We have this idea that this is exactly how it's supposed to happen. Do you know why it's in the Bible in such detail? Because it was unusual. <laughs> because it did not normally happen this way. This is how it normally happened. You'd have a dad, and you'd have a dad. One of them would have a son. One of them would have a daughter. They would say, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's fine. And then they would get married. <laughs> Marriages were arranged. You didn't get to choose. So, this idea that we have, that there is one out there, we're going to walk through night through four myths. Here's the first one. There's only one person for you. That's a myth. We call myth on that. We're going to talk about four myths and four truths. We're going to walk through choosing, and then we're going to talk about dating well with a little side route into what it means to be single. All right? Are you ready? Here's the first one. There's only one person for you. False or true? False. Yes. It's a myth. You know where we get this from, right? Everyone's like, every pot has a top. Every lock has a key. Somewhere out there, there's like the perfect person for you. And there's only one. You know what this does to us? It makes us crazy. It makes us crazy because we think, how am I going to find the one? Could she be here right now? Is she a loft person? Because that's a big point for her if she's a loft person. <laughs> it drives us crazy because then we look at every interaction with every other people. We, we, we sign up for class. We go to class. It's the first day. We scope around. Is the one in here? <laughs> because we think, like, there's just going to be a moment where the one appears, and we've got to seize the moment, otherwise the one's going to disappear. Where do we get this from? Disney? Yeah. Maybe. Pop culture, pop music, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this also leads us to making a list. You make a list of all the qualities you're pushing should have. Do not raise your hand if you have a list. But what this also does is it makes us miss out on anybody who doesn't match our list. If you have a person must be tall on your list, you, list that, you miss out on all the amazing short people in the world. Yeah. Right? If you have certain characteristics or physical attributes on your list, you're going to miss all the people who don't necessarily have those, and you're going to miss out on a lot of good people. So we have this list, and we're sure that our list lines up with the one, and eventually it's all just going to be like... Phew. Here's the truth. There are many, there are many people on this planet to whom you could be happily married. Really, y'all went real quiet there. <laughs> Seriously, there are many people on this planet to whom you could be happily married. It's not like there's just one, like a puzzle piece that just has to fit exactly. Or like, the pot has to have the perfect top. It's more like saran wrap. Okay? It's more like saran wrap. And I mean that in this way. You shape your love for the other person 
Because anytime we make it about us, I've got to find somebody who fits all of my criteria. It's got to be a lid for We make it all about us, we, we get on the bus to crazy town. Anytime we make it about the other, that sounds a lot more like Jesus. So I mean that you shape your love for the person. Every person needs to be loved differently. This is also why we'll talk about this next week and the week after when you've got those lists like, this is how to be a godly husband. This is how you're supposed to love your wife. I, sometimes I read those lists and I'm like, well, maybe one and two, but I don't know about eight. I don't need eight. <laughs> 17, I don't need 17. <laughs> 12 is nice. I mean, you shape your love for the person, all right? So it's not about the one. It's about the commitment. This is why every marriage vow has in it at some point Forsaking all others, I will belong only to you. What is the assumption there? There will be others. There will be others. What you do is you shape your love for the one to whom you are committed. There are going to be others who come along and you think, oh, that person in some ways fits my list better. And then you start to get on the crazy bus again and think, did I miss it? Did I miss the one? Did I miss the moment? Forsaking all others, keep yourself only to that person. It's not about the one, it's about the commitment. You shape your love and you go all in on the one. All right? Speaking of that, that's number two. God will do all the work. Yay! This will be awesome. He'll just bring this person into my life and right, he's out there right now, the divine matchmaker, the divine puzzle master, just working all the angles until that exact moment when poof, I'm going to know. Don't you hate it when you, when you say to somebody who's already married or like engaged and you say, how did you know this person was the one? How did you know you were going to marry this person? And they say, I just knew. <laughs> what is that? That is not helpful to those of us who are trying to figure this whole thing out. I just knew. Stop it. <laughs> give me data. Give me rationale. So this idea that we have that God will do all the work kind of lets us off the hook. We just got to stand back. You know, somebody say, you go, you go home for Easter and aunt so-and-so says, are you dating anybody? And you say, you know, I'm just waiting for God to bring the right person into my life. because I just know it's going to work out that way. All right, what's the truth? Sorry about this. God delights in your work. God doesn't do all the work. He delights in your work. You may remember this little book that we read together. James says that any of us lack wisdom, we should ask God for some. He doesn't say we should choose which we should ask which door to go through, but for the tools to choose wisely. God's primary will for your life is not the achievements you accrue, it's the person you become. God's primary will for your life is not which job you ought to take, the city you live in, whether you get married. God's primary will for your life is that you become a magnificent person in his image, someone with the character of Jesus, that's God's main will for your life. Very often, God's will for your life 
will be, I want you to decide. Because decision-making is an indispensable part of character formation. God is in the character-forming business, not in the circumstance-shaping business. John writes this later in the book. I did not realize that for many years what I was looking for wasn't so much God's will for my life. What I was really looking for was a way to be relieved of the anxiety that comes with taking responsibility for making a difficult decision. Making decisions is an indispensable tool in the formation of excellent persons. Every parent knows this, he says. Imagine a parent who always commands their child's life's life and decisions. You may be thinking, that sounds like my parents, in which case, you need to see a counselor. <laughs> you may be thinking, that sounds like a great arrangement, in which case, your children will need to see a counselor. <laughs> if a parent's desire is for their child to become a truly good person, they'll often insist that the child make his or her own decisions. Persons of excellent will, judgment, and character get formed no other way. This means that sometimes God's will for your life will be you decide. Sometimes you'll ask heaven for direction and God will say to you, I don't care. That doesn't mean God doesn't care about you. It means that God cares more about your personhood and your character than anything else, which is what we would expect from a loving God. God knows that we grow more from having to make a decision than we would if we got a memo from heaven that would prevent us from growing. I know you're like, oh, that's true, but dang it. <laughs> right? Shoot. We actually have to do work now. We actually have to make choices. Yes. Yes. God doesn't do all the work. You get to make choices. Welcome to free will, says the Calvinist. <laughs> that's how it works. Your eternal destination is predestined. Everything else you get to choose. Woo! Now, does God use providence to orchestrate certain things along the way? Yes. Do we have to be paying really good attention to God to figure out those cues? Yes. Do we miss 98% of them? Most likely. <laughs> but here's what we need to remember. Your character is revealed and formed in the choices you make. I remember being at certain points and just wishing, you know, would God just send me a letter? Would he just make a declaration? Would he just announce this to me? Because I didn't want my, form, my character formed. You know, I was fine being immature and kind of needy. That was fine with me. It wasn't fine with God. Your character is revealed and formed in the choices you make. So here's the third myth. Everyone gets to be married. You get a spouse, and you get a spouse, and you get a spouse. No. No. Not everybody gets to be married. And when we talk as if everybody gets to be married, we are for sure marginalizing the 4% in our community who struggle with same-sex attraction or identify as a sexual minority for whom, if they follow Jesus in the, in the more conservative churches, marriage isn't an option. So let's stop talking like marriage is an option for everybody. Because the other truth is, a lot of you are going to be single for a while. Woo! <laughs> Best part of the sermon. You're all going to... Right now, in this room, the majority of you are unmarried. Where are the married people? It's me and Paul. Everyone. Three. <laughs> Three of us. Three of us. All right? 
So, the majority of people in this room are unmarried, and you're gonna be single for a season, or longer, or again. Let me, let, let me give you some stats. Between, people between the ages of 18 and 29, in a survey done by the Gallup organization in 2014, 64% were single and had never been married. 64% of people between the ages of 18 and 29 had never been married. 44% of all American adults are single. 44% of all American adults are single. 50% of the people in New York City are single. 70% of the people in Washington, D.C. are single. And now you're thinking, I know where to plan my internships. <laughs> so singleness can be a season, it can last for a while, and sometimes, now all of you, most of you, I'm guessing, are in the premarital single period. You have not yet been married. But the truth also is that some of us are going to be in a post-marriage single season whether because of death or divorce. Listen to this. A third of women who become widowed are younger than the age of 60 when, it be when they become widowed. Half of all women who will be widowed become so by the age of 65. Now, some of you have seen this. Some of you know what it's like. You've seen this up close. You have watched your mom navigate being a widow. And this is not the life she signed up for. She was planning to have your dad around for a long time, and it didn't work out that way. For some of you, it's your dad who's mourning your mom, and he's got to reinvent his life. And for some of you, you've seen your parents go through divorce, and they've had to rebuild their lives and figure out how to be single people when they did not want to be. So this idea that once you get married, you're married forever, phew, cross the finish line, we've all got it now together, is simply denial. And so we've got to be ready to be single and enjoy it. No one's wooing to that part. It's because our culture has told us, particularly North American evangelical culture, has told us that you are nothing if you're not in a relationship. And you're not an actual woman until you've caught a man. And you're not a man until you can provide for a woman. And those things matter a whole lot to God. And so until you really pair up and find somebody, you know, you're kind of like a three-fourth citizen in the kingdom of God. And we call myth on that. That is not biblical, my friends. That comes out of a weird 1950s Americana idealism, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we are going to reclaim singleness for the kingdom. Let me say that again. We are going to reclaim singleness for the kingdom. Let me remind you, Paul says this. He says, here's a key benefit. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord, so that they may be holy in body and spirit. 
But the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. Now, we can read this and just kind of dismiss it and say, you know, Paul's a little bit of a killjoy on the whole getting married thing. But let me tell you something. As somebody who was married for nine years, single for 12, and now married for three, he is exactly right. He is exactly right. When I was single, I had way more time to attend to the things of God. In my head and with my friends and in my prayer life, I just... I could naturally default to that, to be thinking about God and what he was doing on campus and what he was doing in me and how I could pray for my friends. It just was dynamic. It just kind of happened. And then I started to date the man who would eventually become my husband. It's like that real estate for God like, got smaller because I started to think more about Drew and his kids and his family and our relationship and how is this all going to work out. And Paul is exactly right. And I remember about three, four months after we got married, saying to some friends in a prayer group, Paul is exactly right. And I kind of missed having all that real estate for God. And I've, I've had to work really hard in my spiritual disciplines and habits and practices to be as connected to God as I am to my husband. My husband's here. He walks around. He talks. He's engaging, he's funny, like we can have conversation. God, it like takes more work sometimes, right? But here's where I want to just take a little side and talk a little bit more about being single. And this is particularly for those of you who are seniors and you haven't dated anybody or you broke up with somebody and you're getting toward graduation and somehow because of this North, Evangel North American evangelical lie you've been told, you feel like you're coming to graduation and you're, you've failed. And we call myth on that. And we reclaim singleness for the kingdom. So let's, let me give you four things to celebrate about being single. You can go anywhere. You can go anywhere. You can pursue any job, any grad school, any service opportunity. You can join the Peace Corps. You can volunteer for a mission organization. You can go teach English in China. You can do anything. And let me also say this. While I've got you here, student loans you will always have with you. <laughs> All right? They're always going to be there. Do not shape your life around student loans. Shape your life around kingdom values. Everyone else, this is another value in our culture. Be anxious about money. Let's all together be anxious about money. Let's hold hands and talk about how anxious we are about money all the time. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure Jesus says, let's not. <laughs> so if you hear me say this and you say, you have no idea what I have to pay. Yes, I do because I'm still paying mine. PhDs don't come cheap, y'all. <laughs> Build your life around kingdom values. If you are single, you are free to go anywhere. And once you are married, you are not. All right, next one. You get to manage your own time, your own money, and your own resources. When the weekend approaches, you don't have to navigate with somebody. What are we going to do this weekend? Well, I wanted to see this movie. Well, I wanted to paint the bathroom. <laughs> well, I want to see the movie. I need the bathroom painted. 
Hey, how about we paint the bathroom and then go to the movie? How about we just go to the movie? <laughs> when you're single, you don't have to do that. You can do both or neither. And let me say this about managing finances as a single person. The habits that you set up now will carry into the rest of your life. So here's just a really down and dirty thumbnail of how to spend your money. Give away 10% of it. Save 10% of it. Live off 80% of it. You're welcome. <laughs> Give 10, save 10, live off 80. If you do that now while you have nothing, it will be much easier to do it when you have something. But you get to figure that out. You get to manage your time, your money, your resources now. So do it and do it well. Do it for the glory of God. And then here's something to think about. Live simply. Too often I've watched my single friends and I felt this in myself, that we would become attached to things and accumulate things because it was a way to try to avoid the loneliness that we felt. And so it was like, let's have a nice car, or let's really deck out our apartment, or let's have the best clothes. And it became a way of saying, I can manage my own, I can have stuff, I'm okay, my life's okay, instead of just living simply and finding our contentment in the Lord and in human relationships. So it's an opportunity to live simply, because if you live simply, then you can do number four, which is invest in others freely. It's very tempting as a single person to kind of pull back and isolate and live your own life and kind of, and that's not what we're invited to do. We're invited to invest in other people. So I invested deep in my friendships and I invested deep in my church and I invested deep in a prayer group. Now I'd love to say to you, all those things made it so that I was never lonely and life was happy all the time. No but it allowed me to keep the main thing the main thing and not get on the bus to crazy town, which is an important thing to avoid. The other thing to do when we talk about investing in others freely is invest in your friends. Invest in your friends. Make friend dates with people. I've said this to you before. Just as you set up dates with someone that you want to be romantically involved with, set up dates with friends who make you better people. Because what you will hold from your Calvin experience along with formulas for calculus and how to write computer code, what you will hold are your friendships. Invest in your friendships. All right, we have one myth left. Here you go. If you find the one, you'll be happy forever. Yay! And that's what gets us on the bus to crazy town. Because we think if I just find the right person, then he or she will come into my life and everything will be good for all time because God will have done all his work and he'll have brought this person into my life and it'll be so wonderful forever and ever, amen. <sighs> but what's the truth? There's no way to guarantee a happy life. We try all the time. There's no way to guarantee a happy life. Why? You can marry somebody, a wonderful human being, and you can still deal with illness, infertility, addictions, financial problems, problems in your extended family, problems with your kids. 
Sin exists in singleness and, single, and sin exists in marriages. So don't think once I get married, my life will finally flatten out and I'll be like in this bubble of protection from sin. No. See, when you're single, it's just you as a sinner, kind of managing your own sin. And, and then you get married and it's two sinners who come together and got to manage a whole bunch more sin. So now you're thinking, thanks a lot, Pastor Mary. <laughs> this has been super fun so far. I'm so glad I came. So if there are many possible choices out there and God wants us to do our own work and we're all going to be single for a while and probably again someday and there's no way we can guarantee ourselves a happy life, what are we supposed to do? All right, let's all just take a breath and calm down. And remember, we've talked about things like this before. So let's remember, how do we make choices? We talked about this together at the very beginning of the semester. I had people up here in a triangle. We had three things. What were they? Oh, help us out, Ben. There you go. <laughs> Word, spirit, community. The same thing comes to dating, people. It's not like all your decisions about what you're supposed to major in and who you're supposed to be when you grow up, like those go there, but dating's like in a different triangle. Dating is in the center of this triangle. So you're not going to date anybody who does things in disagreement with God's word. You're going to date people who love the word of God and want to live in obedience to it. You're not going to date anybody who isn't seeking to have an animated and dynamic relationship through the power of the Holy Spirit. They may not have it. They may have flat seasons, but they would like it. They're longing for it. They're working at it. And you're not, listen to me, you're not going to date anyone that your friends do not like. Anybody need a moment? Need to do one of these things? You want to know a fun fact? 63% of married couples meet through their network of friends. 63% of married couples meet through their network of friends. That's how I met my husband. So you need to ask your friends who know you, who do you think is out there who would be good for me? Who do you think would be good for me who's out there? Like, who do you know that you think, you know, would be good for you? This person. And if you're dating somebody and your friends are like, mm, 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 <laughs> you need to ask them why that is. And if you have a friend who's dating somebody that you don't like, you need to tell them why that is. You don't just let it go, and then they get engaged, and then you have, they ask you to stand up in the wedding, and you're thinking, ah, oh, this one's not going to work at all. <laughs> People do this. These aren't like things I am making up out of my head. This is what happens. Because we're so used to being nice and polite and somehow Midwestern that we don't have the chutzpah to say, you're dating somebody who's wrong for you. I love you too much to let this go ahead. I will break up with this person on your behalf if you would like me to. <laughs> so once your friends have recommended someone for you to date, or you've got an idea, how do you date well? 
Seek first kingdom character. You know, in this passage where Jesus says, do not worry about what you're going to eat or drink or who you're going to marry, that's a paraphrase, um, (laughs) he ends it by saying, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek someone who has kingdom character. Don't date somebody just because their major has the potential for financial benefit down the line. Oh, is that a thing too? Because you can date somebody who's, who's got a really good potential and he's, he or she is working for five years and realizes that they hate the job and they want to be a Christian school kindergarten teacher. And you're thinking, I was planning on this much money and you're going to be making now this much. Don't date somebody for their financial potential. Don't date somebody because they look good. Let me tell you, when Parents Weekend comes around, look at the parents. They looked like you 25 years ago. Look at them now. I know because I'm one of those people. Looks do not last, okay? Looks don't last. Financial security can wax and wane. What keeps is character. So my friend Neil Plantinga says, go out on a date with somebody and watch how they treat the person who's bringing you the food. Do they remember the person's name? Do they smile at the person? Do they thank the person? If you go to the checkout and they're ahead, do they, do they engage with the clerk? Do they thank the clerk? How are they toward people who owe them nothing? And then here's another thing to do. Take them on an outing where they have to do something they're not particularly good at. And maybe it's something that you are somewhat good at. So maybe you you go to paint a pot, which would be like, you know, the worst possible date for me ever in the history of time. (laughs) But you take them to paint a pot, or you take them golfing, or you take them bowling. And if you've taken them golfing and by the third hole they are slamming their club and they're swearing, you could just be like, hey, I'm good. We don't have to play the full nine or 18 or anything. Like, mm. <laughs> Shut it down. <laughs> Seek kingdom character. Is this the kind of person you want to have ministering to you when you have a fever of 103 and you can't walk? Is this a person who's going to be, hey, honey, what can I get you? Here's, here's all the things I've already gotten you. Here's Sprite, and here's ginger ale, and here's water, and here's hot tea, and I'm going to massage your feet now for a little while. <laughs> if it's not somebody who's willing to do that, shut it down. <laughs> because in that moment, you don't care how cute this person is. You care that they are rubbing your feet. <laughs> Second thing, take a chance for Pete's sake. People, take a chance. Take a chance. All right, so we're going to practice some lines together. Repeat after me. I think you're interesting. I'd like to get to know you better. 
Can I buy you a cup of coffee? How hard was that? That's not hard. Let's try another one. I think you're funny. I'd like to get to know you better. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Are you getting it? Are you getting the rhythm? So you begin with a nice compliment that you've noticed something about this person. And then you say that you'd like this relationship to go in a slightly different direction. And then you offer $4. (laughs) All right? You're not getting down on one knee. You're not meeting the person's parents. It's a cup of coffee. Take a risk and ask somebody out. And if somebody says to you, I think you're interesting, I'd like to get to know you better, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Your answer is yes. Unless the person is an atheist who swears a whole lot, then you say no. (laughs) Discernment, discernment. (laughs) Calvin Value. If the person loves Jesus, you're already on pretty good ground. And it's a cup of coffee. So, you've had the cup of coffee. You have two options now. Both of them involve truth-telling. Option number one. This has been really enjoyable, and I would like to do it again. Let's say that. This has been really enjoyable. enjoyable. And I would like to do it again. Easy, clear, the person has a very clear understanding of what you are coming at. They, they know, all right? It's not like, well, I don't know what he thought. I don't know. What did he say? What did, I don't know what he said. So talk about <laughs> You don't want that. You want clarity. Clarity. So that's, that's option A. Option B, thank you for this, but I am not interested in a romantic relationship with you. Okay, listen. <laughs> This is what I get in my office. Well, I don't really know what she thinks about me. I don't really know what he thinks about me because we, have, we went out a couple of times and I really don't know. Be clear. <laughs> it's really selfish. It's really off of me. I am, so, I mean, please, people don't drag it out. If you know that this person is not interesting enough to compel you toward a second date, would you please tell them? And if somebody says that to you, you say, thank you for your honesty. You say, thank you for your honesty. You don't say, why? (laughs) Not an appropriate answer. You can talk about that with your friends when you get back to your room. Don't ask that person in that moment. He or she just made a really bold move by saying that they are not interested in a romantic relationship. You say, thank you for your honesty. What do you say? Thank you for your honesty. Yes. Yes. We are going to change the dating culture of Calvin College. Yes. Stop dinking around. Because this... You can survive a breakup. You can. Everybody who survived a breakup, raise your hand. Yeah, you're also 
awesome, you're 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 awesome, awesome, awesome people. You can survive a breakup. Now, here's, here's um, facts for those of you who are caring for people going through a breakup. Here's what I've learned. Emotional pain activates the same pathways in the brain as physical pain, so rejection actually hurts physically. And people often feel like they're having pain in their chest or all over. In fact, studies have been done that compare a breakup to being in a fender bender. The physical pain is similar. That's why when you get up after you've broken up with somebody, whether they did it or you did it or it was mutual, <laughs> it hurts. It hurts. It actually physically hurts. So if you've got a friend who's broken up with somebody, like give them a couple of days. Give them a week. Give them time. Be nice to them. Remember that whole thing about the ginger ale and the rubbing of the feet? It also applies there. Here's another really interesting thing. This is going to explain a lot to so many of you. Studies show that withdrawal symptoms for an ex are like the cravings for cocaine. Withdrawal symptoms from an ex are like the cravings for cocaine. And some of you are like, oh, that makes so much sense now. This is also why people, when you break up, break up, go cold turkey. Break up. What did I say? Break up. None of this little, you know, thinking of you texts. No. No, 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 no. Don't think of that person. Don't text the person. Don't stalk them on social media. Don't ask your friends about them. Don't try to go to the places they go to see if they're going to be there. Break up. Cold turkey. Because... There's a reason why you're not together. Own it. And believe that there's something that you can take from it and learn from it and move on. Because here's the other truth about a breakup. God doesn't waste anything. God doesn't waste anything. You can survive a breakup. You can move forward. And here's the really important thing about dating well. Love generously. The temptation when you're dating or when you've been broken up with or you're not quite sure about this, the temptation is to imagine that you have like this little jar of love sprinkles and there's a limited supply and if I give some to Bonnie then I don't have enough for Trey and you know I gotta keep some because someday I may marry somebody and you know I'm gonna <laughs> hoard my little love sprinkles. No! That's not the way it works. Because then we're making love all about us and what we can get. And God, who is rich in mercy, says that's not what this is about. Love is about giving how much you can give. And the beautiful thing is if you get really good at loving people, love doesn't decrease, it multiplies. So you need to love your roommate. Your roommate who drives you crazy, who has all these annoying habits, should the Lord call you to marriage, loving your roommate will be very helpful. <laughs> love the people on your team. Love the people on your floor. Love your professors. 
Love generously, love sacrificially. Get to know this person. What are they like? What's interesting to them? Because if you get really good at loving people, when there's someone who comes across your path and you say, I think you're funny, smart, interesting, and I'd like to get to know you better, you're gonna be all ready. Because your love muscles are gonna be strong. And if the person says, what are your camels? You'll be like, yeah. I got like Rebecca love muscles going on. <laughs> love generously. Here's what John has to say about this. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know love does not know God for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Remember the title of this series? What does the resurrection have to do with relationships? This. And this is love. Not that we loved God. Not that it was all about us. Not that we were trying to do something great. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Since God loved us so much, we also get to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Love generously. Love because that's what God and Christ has done for you. Love like your life depends on it. Because it does. because it does. Love generously. Live like Christ.